Hi, welcome back to Smoking Issues. Today we're talking about mission and crystal methodology. Is the Bible intentionally silent on methodology or do the scriptures give us clear patterns we should follow? This episode highlights some central differences between Reformed ecclesiology and theology and Anglicanism as it relates to ecclesiological flexibility. We'll be discussing these issues while smoking small Macanudo cigars. Welcome to the podcast where nerdy guys smoke cigars and talk about smoking issues in the church. Thanks for being here. If you have any questions or want to comment on what we discuss, you can contact us via Facebook Messenger. You can email us at smokingissues at gmail.com or you can go to our new website at smokingissues.com. And, and on that website, you can find more information about the topics we discuss both now in the past as well as in the future. Uh, for those of you just jumping into this podcast with us, I'm Josh. And I'm Ian. Ian, how you doing today, amigo? I am well. Uh, can you believe one month in 2018 already? I can't believe it. I honestly can't believe it. Uh, it almost seems re- like it's unreal. 12th, uh, 12th of the way through the year. Don't even say that. I don't even know what, you mean, what you're talking about right now. Right. Um, it's, it's unreal. Unreal. I, uh, it, 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 it seems like just... Seems like just a few moments ago we were in uh, in 2017. You know what I'm saying? I know it feels strange. It feels weird. It really does. It's like, almost like we're time traveling or something. We're time traveling. That's great. That's great. Well, um, how are things going in Annapolis with you? Uh, Annapolis is uh, beautiful. It's a shame when all the Christmas lights go down because uh, you know there's still months left of winter and it's still cold and dark, um, and all the Christmas lights are gone and uh, no one comes to Annapolis. Oh my gosh! I was when I was there uh, a couple months ago. It was uh, it was amazingly beautiful on uh, Main Street, West. I guess it's West Street because it's north of uh, Church Circle. But it had this beautiful light strung across the road. And you know, um, I was driving one of the back roads, and uh, on Maryland Avenue, there was uh, there was those lights as well. Have they have they always had those lights on Maryland Avenue? <laughs> no, this is a new thing. They're like expanding the expanding the Christmas lights. I love it. Right? It's charming. It's I love great. it too. It's great. Well, um, when I was back in town, I guess it was a month and a half ago or so, a month ago. It was just about <coughs> a month ago. Um, when I was back in town, uh, I was driving on Maryland Avenue looking for parking space early in the morning, and, uh, and the lights were still on, so I ended up taking a picture. It was, it was amazing. Beautiful. That's good. Well, uh, so Ian, uh, as we mentioned, uh, today we're talking about church methodology, and specifically, we want to focus on how different theological approaches view what the Bible says and, and how it says it. And, and even more specific than that um, is, is the question that we want to ask in this podcast today is, uh, is, the scripture pers- is the scriptural perspective on how we do church, um, is it prescriptive? So is the scripture prescriptive in how we do church? And if it is, what are the implications for this? 
So um, how do we view scripture as uh, prescriptive in the what and the how behind the why of church? And what are the implications of where we land on this? So uh, you and I have very different views on this, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm excited to, to have us jump into some of these topics while we're smoking this uh, tiny Macanudo, uh, Macanudo cigar. They are delicious, though, aren't they? Oh, they're so good. This one uh, that we're smoking, I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, it it's a comes in a tube. Um, it's four inches long by 32 um, in width. Mm-hmm. So 32 ring size. So it's very small, very quick, and appropriate for our new podcast uh, format that we've been exercising for the past two weeks, right? It's true. It's true. Uh, much smaller and more manageable. Yeah. Smaller, leaner, hopefully meaner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm certainly going for the meaner. <laughs> As you always do, uh-huh. especially last week. Jerk. I'm sorry. Mia culpa. <laughs> mia culpa. Mia maxima culpa. Um, let's, uh, let's start by perhaps defining some of our terms. Sure. Um, ecclesiological. Sure. Or ecclesiology. Great. Well, ecclesiology, ecclesia, um, is a, is a Greek term and it's the term that we use for church. So it's the theology of the church, ecclesia, the theology of the church, um, ecclesiology. So that's what we mean. Um, and the big question that we have here, what we're trying to define in this podcast today is um, do, is the Bible telling us how do we do church? Mm-hmm. Like our methods of how we do church, the order of worship, the type of style, the type of liturgy, the things that we do, things that we pray about. Um, is the Bible prescript, prescriptive on those things? Mm-hmm. Does it tell us exactly how we're supposed to do them? Is there a biblical way to do church and an unbiblical way to do church? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially as it relates to um, methodology within a service, methodology within the public gathering space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this has been an area of conversation which um, in the past sort of few decades of ecumenical dialogue has gone largely un- undiscussed uh, out of a desire to avoid stumbling blocks. Um, nobody in sort of you know mainstream evangelical theological conversation has really been talking about you know what the, do the offices and roles within a church have to do with A, scripture, and B, um, God. Um, you, know, you know, these things have been seen as incidental, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. Incidental or accidental yeah. to, you know, the church as an institution. That is divine, that exists, but its offices and its functions, well, all of that has been left, you know, well, we're not going to talk about that in, in books or, it's, or in conferences. We're going to let local communities decide those things for themselves and local denominations. And it's mm-hmm. kind of been, uh, you kind of have your sandbox of what you believe on how the church should run. And I've got my sandbox and, yeah. and we're going to play in our own sandbox over here until uh, such time as we can work together on some things. Yes. Yes. So it hasn't been a ama- and, and of course this is not a topic where a lot of churches would dis- disagree on to such an extent that they couldn't commune together. But it hasn't really been discussed that much mm-hmm. because, um, you know, if you listen to a lot of podcasts out there, a lot of people that do podcasts together, they have similar views of church. Sometimes they go to the same church with the same style of church. Mm-hmm. That's what sparks these friendships, what sparks these um, really good podcasts. There's some really good Christian podcasts out there, but uh, there's very few people that I think have as drastically different views as you as I do mm-hmm. in this area and uh, that have a podcast and talk about it. Okay, we're talking about ecclesiology, which is the uh, the relationship of the organization of the church uh, to the scriptures and to God, and uh, methodology. What kind of methodology we're we talking about today? 
So I think we're talking about uh, how the, how we should do church on a Sunday morning, public gathering space, um, how how the church is structured, leadership. I mean, I think we can go probably a lot a couple of different places. Okay. But the methods of how we're doing church, both from a leadership standpoint, from a liturgy standpoint, um, I'd say that kind of the field is wide open in. Good, good. Um, so, is the Bible silent or clear on ecclesiological methodology? Does the scripture say anything about how Christian, the Christian community should exist and what shape it should take? So, who's going first? Be my guest. Oh, well, thank you. You're so nice. You're such a doll, Ian. Such a doll. <laughs> well, um, I, I hold a view that the Bible is intentionally silent on um, most of the nuances of methodology. So uh, I would say that when you see in the scriptures, you see elders very specifically defined in First and Second Timothy and Titus as a plurality of elders, a plurality of, of biblically qualified men that shows themselves um, approved and able to lead a local congregation. And then we see deacons. So uh, let, uh, deacons is more of a servant role, um, serving people, taking care of those in need, taking care of the homeless, taking care of the more practical aspects of running the organization of church, which um, fosters the organism to grow. So I would say that the Bible is intentionally silent on what form or method or expression of those offices and those roles would be. But there is some hints that we get in the scriptures. We see um, Paul consistently preaching on the Sabbath. So we see a consistent gathering of believers. Even in Acts 2, we see them gathering in the temple and in homes. Mm -hmm. So we would say that there's some sort of, of smaller gathering of people in homes and local communities. We see that there's a larger gathering of people that come together once a week to celebrate this, the Sabbath together. And then we also see the sacraments, which um, is the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And we see those being expressed in a biblical church. So we see elders, deacons, we see celebration in homes, uh, sh typically sharing a meal together. We see gatherings that share the Lord's Supper together there as well. Um, and then we see these two um, ordinances, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. So don't uh, worry, you can call them sacraments. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> hey, man, I come from a Baptist background, so once you start going to sacraments, there's a, it's a long, slippery slope to popery, baptizing babies, Roman popery, <laughs> Roman popery. That's great. Oh, that's, that's, that's 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 been three podcasts in, and we've uh, only now mentioned Roman popery. So, oh my gosh, that's awesome! I know, isn't it? We great? need to do another bingo sheet. We really do. We did. We Let's should do that. But uh, but I would I would argue that the Bible is intentionally silent on the methodology on how to express these on the unique expression of what does it look like in a Sunday morning service? What does it look like in a in a small group and that meets in homes? How do you do the Lord's Supper? Um, how do you baptize? Um, what the what does the team of men that lead a local church look like? What does a, a pastor look blazes, like? Blazes, blazes all around. Oh, it's got to be. It's got to be. Sport coats. Or really, um, plaid shirts. Plaid shirts and designer jeans. Mm, good. Yeah, good. yeah. That's the official garb of biblical elders. Of course, it's in the New Testament. 
You can always when you literally when you walk into like a city, like missional church context, you almost always know who the pastors are, because they almost always wear plaid and designer jeans. It's a bit strange, or hoodies. Sometimes I wear hoodies. Ian. Oh, gross. <laughs> so that's my that's my argument. Ian, um, what what do you see? Is the Bible silent or clear on ecclesiological methodology? I think, I think we have to decide how we are reading the New Testament. Well, oh gosh, that's a that's a can of worms. I know, I isn't we it? Can, we can open in a thirty-minute podcast. Right. We're not doing um, hour and a half podcasts anymore, Ian. No, exactly. Sorry, I'll I'll, uh, I'll dial it back. Uh, I think what uh, what I am seeing is the New Testament church as an in, as firstly an inheritor of the synagogue tradition of. Second Temple Judaism. It's primarily where they begin. They're a, a, a Jewish religious renewal movement uh, who inherit practices from the temple and the synagogue uh, and then begin also to encounter Gentile pagan world and, and, um, and receive uh, habits and practices from the Gentiles who come into the congregation. So as the spirit um, grows the church, so the church... Uh, forms a new identity, uh, which is that's good. Which is distinct from both the Judaism of the Second Temple and the paganism of the Roman Empire. Um, and we see the church make very intentional decisions uh, at certain junctures. I mean, in the New Testament, there's one or two examples of this of when the church made choices to um, deviate from things that it had received. Thinking particularly of what Acts 15. Yep, the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council, whereby James the Just um, makes a apostolic decision um, that um, Gentile converts to Christianity would not have to follow all of the Mosaic law. Yeah, that was a massive shift in the church that yep. I don't think normal, what I would say the average Christian doesn't quite understand how massive that mm-hmm. Jerusalem Council was in shaping the trajectory of the church mm-hmm. and actually paving the way for Paul to make some of the decisions that he makes with himself and with Timothy. Mm-hmm. And as he writes the epistles, he looks back on that experience with with James and Peter and the Jerusalem Council mm-hmm. to inform how he then communicates with the, with the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, actually, I root my, my New Testament ecclesiology um, principally in, in this, to say that the Spirit lives in the church through the church and make and and through the office of the apostles uh we see the church grow and change and form its new identity right right so this tells me um that um where the new testament in its in the specifics of the text might be silent on what happens in a church the spirit has not been silent the Spirit has spoken through the apostles um, by leading them to make certain decisions at certain times in certain places, which then shape how the church functions. Now, I would call this sacred tradition, uh, which, is, um, which is derived from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the church, uh, which um, you know, the Spirit speaks in every generation all over the world, and all over the world, apostles... Um, as I believe them, uh, apostles make decisions guided by the spirit appropriate for their time and place. 
this is actually uh, this is actually the ecclesiology or the ecclesiological methodology uh, I read from the New Testament. It's a, it, it, it's not as though the New Testament is a textbook telling us how to run the church, but rather it shows us how the Spirit works through God's people. That's what we can trust. Uh, not only uh, in our present day, also look back and see through church history. And that helps us to reconcile some of the, um, some of the things which uh, certain brands of Protestant have found objectionable about, objectionable, objectionable about church history. Uh, I can reconcile that by saying, like, well, we are not a people who merely read text and obey it. We are people who are filled with the Spirit of God uh, who listen to his voice and obey him uh, in ways that are very particular to our needs and our context. So you don't believe that the Bible is prescriptive with the methodology. You believe that the apostles have been prescriptive with the methodology following the scriptures, the Jerusalem Council, um, and the apostolic succession, mm -hmm. which then informs your liturgy Mm -hmm. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Is that an accurate understanding? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so, so it might be a little, a little more, a little more, a little more distinct from what from what you might have expected from me. Yeah, I was expecting that you would draw a lot of the liturgical pieces that you use um, from the scripture, saying this is scriptural. So what you're saying is this is um, well, apostolic. The, the, you're saying that this is apostolic, not necessarily scriptural. Well, of course, uh, the Book of Common Prayer has been described by some as the Bible arranged for worship. And certainly, a lot of the content I use in the in the liturgy I lead is like from the Psalms, from the Scriptures. It's uh, transcriptions of verses of the Bible, you know, arranged in such a way as to be, you know, experience of worship that you can have. But ultimately, the decisions about that liturgy um, does not come from a study of the New Testament per se. It comes from a study of the New Testament by the by the apostles of the church handed down to me. Gotcha. Okay, so so let's talk through. Apostleship, mm -hmm. um, which I think we've touched on, we've touched on in the past, but um, kind of reiterate again for some of our listeners, our five listeners now, mm -hmm. we're growing. In we I believe from, us. we went from two to four, had a big jump. Now we're at five mm -hmm. in my mental count. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, which is purely not based on facts, just my feelings. Mm -hmm. Let's just be clear. Um, so, so help us understand apostleship. And why do apostles have authority? And are they capital A apostles? Can they generate new scripture? Can they generate new... Um, because we, we see the apostles in the New Testament generating scripture, mm -hmm. receiving direct words from the Lord, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to, carry, as, as, as First Peter says, carried along by the Holy Spirit to write, write, write the scripture. So, so do we still have capital A apostles today? Um, well... Uh, I think I think you uh, you know uh, we'll, we'll both agree that the um, the church made us made a decision. Uh, I'm using a sort of slightly technical church history term here, closing the canon. Right. Right. Um, so, so so that addresses our immediate question: that uh, the uh, the bishops and patriarchs of the church, the very early era, decided together to say these are the these are the testimonies, uh, not only to the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but also um, testimony to the origins of our church. And we don't need to tamper with this anymore. You know, this is sufficient. 
Okay, uh, so there's a difference between the apostles that wrote the New Testament with God's authority and the apostles of today that set the liturgical sacramental system that that you now run it. There's a difference. I'm not sure. I'm not, I wouldn't. I'm not sure. I'm going to talk about a difference between them. Um, but I'm saying, like you know, we we are we're a, a Christian community that lives in a linear progression of history, bound by the decisions of a previous generation. So, the the church of an early generation decided to close the canon. So we live with that decision. Yeah, but I guess the question is, why did they decide to close the canon? If oh, why did they decide to close the canon? I mean, historians have been debating that for a long time. The answer I find most sufficient is to say that. Um, as the church grew in numbers and in scope, the, commu- the direct communication between apostles became much, much more challenging, you know, as, as, they, as they, you know, move further and further apart. And so they needed to, ha- to, to find some agreement on what is their common witness from which they're deriving their faith. And so when they gathered together, I think it was um, Chalcedon, I think, yeah, uh, Chalcedonian Council. Um, they they come uh, and say, okay, well, what what are the documents we're all using already to determine our faith? And they discover that the the canon of the New Testament is already pr- pretty well in agreement. These are the common documents. Uh, the 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 global church of the time which stretched, I guess, from North Africa, the Middle East, Southern Europe, and probably the Middle East um, quite a bit. But if, I guess my, my point is, is that there's got to be a difference of authority if we're going to say that there are certain apostles that wrote certain things. And those yes, things yes, are but What I'm trying to avoid biblical. here is a dispensationalist theology. I'm not, I'm not willing to say that the New Testament apostles have some sort of dis- different dispensation of authority um, because I think that... Um, you know, the relationship that we have now with creator God through Jesus Christ is the same as Paul's. So I, I, can't, I can't determine, I can't draw an arbitrary line and say that Paul had a different kind of faith well, or a different kind of relationship with God to us. I'm, I'm unwilling to say that. Well, I would argue, now this goes back to authority. So this is pertinent. I think this is good for us to, to walk down this path. I actually would argue that our faith is the same. The spirit that lives inside of us is the same. The mm-hmm. Bible says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now is inside of us mm-hmm. in, and giving us power, giving us Christ power. Um, but I would say that every apostle that wrote the New Testament that we have record of, I believe, and I might be wrong on this, but uh, had a direct eyeball-to-eyeball encounter mm-hmm. with Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, St. Luke did not. I need to research that. I can't speak to that right now. Okay. But let's, let's, let's use Paul as an example, right? So Paul is, is persecuting the church after Christ as Saul, mm-hmm. stoning, stoning of Stephen. And then he meets Christ eyeball to eyeball on the road. Mm-hmm. So the spirit that, in, that fills him, the faith that he has is the same. But we have not seen the physical embodiment of Christ. Paul did. So his faith is sight. His faith literally was sight. His faith was so much sight that it blinded him for three days. Mm-hmm. 
So I would say that there's a different level of authority that a man like that has being eyeball to eyeball with Christ himself and having the authority of an apostle, capital A apostle, who could then write the scriptures. But there's a certain point in time where that doesn't happen anymore. Which point I don't time? think that's... I find that I find that a very arbitrary line to draw. Well, you know, I think that there's a there's some passages of scripture that well, every author says that what they're writing is directly from the Lord. And then it was universally accepted by the church. And so the Council of Chalcedon, as you and I know, just affirmed what the early church already believed. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. There's people that write a bunch of stuff that say, I'm God, but most people chalk them up as crazy and out there. So there's a certain point in time where, where it's the certain writings that we had, I wouldn't call it dispensationalist theology. I would call it a twinge of dispensationalist mindset within probably the reform movement even, that they would say that there's a certain point in time where the canon was closed. But there's got to be yes, a yes. difference I, I, in I, authority between the apostles that wrote the New Testament yes, and, and the apostles of today. Yes, and that, and that difference in authority comes from their choice to submit to the scriptures. So, so the Council of Chalcedon comes, and remember, like, an apostle becomes an apostle because uh, an apostle prior to them affirms in them that gift and lays their hands on them, Why giving them that authority. That? Explain that really quick. So the consecration of a bishop, uh, which in Anglican ecclesiology, uh, the bishop is the successor to the apostle and, 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 and functions in an apostolic, apostolic role for the diocese. Um, they, uh, do not, they do not uh, win, win enough degrees to get them into that position, but rather somebody who already occupies that office uh, must discern with them that calling and then lay their hands on them. And two or three others must also affirm this calling and lay their hands on them to grant them that authority in the church, the, the apostolic voice in the church, uh, and, the, and the consecration to the, um, to the Episcopal office. Yeah, and this launches into a bit of a different subset of our conversation, which I think we'll probably address in, mm -hmm. in other podcasts, which is church polity and church mm -hmm. leadership. But um, to say that methodology can be... So, so you can't deviate from that. So it comes from, because it comes from an apostle, mm -hmm. it has a sense of authority. Mm -hmm. Apostle in your context being a bishop. Mm -hmm. It seems like that has this, it, it feels like to me, I may be wrong. It feels like to me as I hear you describe it, and I've heard you talk about it in the past, that it has the same weight as the scriptures. So if a bishop says something, um, it has the same weight, it has the same authority. Is that how you see that? How do you, how do you reconcile the authority of the scriptures with the authority of a bishop? Well, as I said, you know, uh, the, the decision of the, of the universal church at a very early point was to be bound by the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures, such that from that point forward, when we talk about a Christian faith, when we talk about Jesus Christ, the Holy Trinity... The only reference point we have is the New Testament at this point. When you step out, when you step away from the New Testament and begin thinking you can talk about God, uh, no longer are you speaking um, with a voice which, which the church should believe. 
So, so the, the Episcopal office becomes subject to the scriptures after they affirm the authority of the scriptures, such that then, we, such that then especially Anglicans have, have, have done this, being able to call bishops to account um, in light of scripture. Uh, and, and this is something that was set in stone um, or, or set in writing uh, the foundation of the Church of England with the 39, art, 39 Articles of Religion, saying that the word of God was the foundation of the church. Um, which, is always, which always has been, of course, um, but making that very explicit to say that you know, you know, even the highest, um, the highest apostolic authority in the Church of England must still answer um, basic questions about the New Testament. Uh, and, 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 and so there's a relationship there between uh, uh, the, the apostolic authority given to the bishop. I don't think, I, you know, to, 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 as in, to, to avoid a dispensationalist tinge uh, is not... You know, there's not an arbitrary line drawn, and the first generation of apostles are just of a whole different category. But rather, in the development of the church and its life, um, they have chosen to bind themselves by certain decisions, which shape their future. Hmm. Okay. I think it's time for a smoke break. It's time for a smoke break. Yeah. This is good because this is a short cigar. It is, yeah. Um, I'm pretty much done with mine. Um, so we are smoking a Macanudo Cafe, as I mentioned before. It's a very small, four inches by 32 ring size, Connecticut shade, Dominican wrapper. It is extremely mild. It's mm -hmm. almost like you're smoking flavored air, Ian. What do you think? Yep. I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very casual smoke. Uh, I must say my complaint is that, especially always on these smaller cigars, um, the moistening of the end, it just starts to sort of fall apart. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It just has to yeah. crumble, and it's like you have to sort of like curl your um, curl your lip in, and uh, and uh, try and try and keep it dry, uh, because otherwise, like like that that bitter flaking tobacco leaf, I mean, it just makes a horrible like sour taste. See, I don't mouth. get that sour taste, Ian. I, I, you know, you mentioned it in a couple of different podcasts, and you know, a lot of the times I just don't get it. Maybe I'm just more accustomed to it. Um, but for me, it's smooth all the way through uh -huh. with uh, with the Macanudo Cafe, and I didn't quite. I think because it's very small, um, I didn't quite notice a lot of difference in the um, in the flavor mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. um, I think it actually got. Uh, I think it was actually probably a little bit sweeter at the beginning. But um, but medium, kind of towards the middle and towards the end, um, I really didn't notice that much difference. But get, again, extremely extremely mild. Um, don't really it doesn't really have that much flavor to it. But uh, these types of cigars I like to take with me um, when I travel, so that I can have a quick thirty minute smoke, you know, um, uh, in between meetings or running around or or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's a very easy cigar to share, especially for people that aren't used to, to smoking. So, um, we're just kind of going through the motions with this right now, kind of trying different things. I think we're going to get more exotic cigars as we progress along in the year. Mm -hmm. Um, we've actually got a schedule of different cigars that we're going to try. Um, so, so that's kind of exciting. So we're starting kind of with the milder cigars in January, February, March, and we'll, and we'll move on towards probably some, and, and pipe tobacco as well. We, we mm -hmm. had pipe tobacco, I guess it was last week, right? Mm -hmm. That was um, delicious. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. And, and then we'll, we'll continue to go along in intensity. Um, so we've got to, so, so, so back to the topic. Yes. Back to the topic. Um, you know, uh, 
I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry to have sprung this conversation on you because I think, I think this isn't quite, quite what you expected. Um, uh, because my, my, the, way I, the way I view how the New Testament relates to how the church today functions is mediated. Not, it's, not, it's not directly applicable always, but rather it's, it's mediated by a larger body who have made decisions which I have nothing to do with, which I must then live by. See, and that's, the, that's a problem for me. Uh, because when I read the scriptures, I don't see that. I don't see the prescription. That, that to me is a prescription. That says in order for us to operate today, we have to read the text and then we are bound. I think you even use this term bound by the decisions of our of the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't see anywhere in the scriptures that says we are. Um, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. When Jesus handed the keys of the kingdom to St. Peter... That whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. For Anglicans and, and for Orthodox and Catholics, we interpret that as, as the role of the Episcopal office. But Binding it, and loosing, like how like church law, essentially, like how the church should function. But isn't that promised to the entire church, Ian? I think it is promised to the, to the entire church. But if, if speaking to what you said a few minutes ago, saying that, um, you don't differentiate the faith of the apostles with the faith of us, mm-hmm. which I probably would differentiate slightly. But let's just assume what you said a few minutes ago is true. The faith of the apostles is no different than the faith of us. So when Jesus says something to Peter, he says, I give you the keys mm-hmm. of the kingdom. In my mind, that says, yes, we have authority in God's kingdom to bind and loose things. Mm-hmm. We have authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins that comes from Christ. Mm-hmm. That, that, to me, is not specific to a bishop. It's not specific to uh, the episcopoi, the episcopos. Um, it's, it's specific to every believer that's filled with God's Spirit, which means that I'm not bound by the decisions of my forefathers. Because if I was, coming from the Baptist tradition, um, I would be in a very sorry state right now if I was bound by the theological decisions of my forefathers. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the theological positions of my forefathers... Um, in in the denomination that I came out of, that I'm not in right now, would say that slavery is okay, and I would have to submit to that. Mm-hmm. So, how do you justify that? Well, um, for a start, you know, uh, as I said, I'm not I'm not I'm not seeing um, the New Testament as commanding so much as it is describing a reality, right? And so, when I when I read uh, how uh, Paul and the other apostolic figures uh, function in the New Testament, which was to say they consecrated uh, new apostolic figures over an area uh, to carry out their ministry uh, with, with, you know, with, a, with an authority. You know, for example, Tim- Timothy is, uh, is, is given um, a kind of authority over the churches uh, in his region because Paul knows he's, he can't come back there and he's going to die. So right. it seems to me that t- Timothy becomes an inheritor of Paul's apostolic authority because Paul gives it to him. Yeah, but, but also Paul sent Timothy around quite a bit mm-hmm. before Timothy landed. Timothy was like Paul mm-hmm. in the sense that he was a utility player. He was sent to where, was, where he was needed. Mm-hmm. So he didn't necessarily have authority over one church or even one region. Mm-hmm. He would just kind of, Paul said, go here, he goes there, he fixes something. Paul says, go there, he goes there, he fixes something. So, um, but the Bible's not explicit. You don't believe that the Bible's explicit with that. 
I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know where you would turn to to say Paul passes the mantle of his apostolic authority to Timothy, and then tells Timothy to get two other guys that have the same thing, and get together and lay hands on somebody, and then that's how it passes down from there to today. Well, no, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the uh, the formalization of that process um, comes out of the of the needs of the church to be clear and public about who is in what role. When was it formalized? When was it formalized? I have no idea. I have no idea. I would idea. imagine when the, when the Church of England started. I mean, for, the, for Anglicans, the ordinal, which is uh, the order of ordaining bishops, priests, and deacons, uh, comes out of the, of the English Reformation. Yeah, so 1,500 years of not clarifying or classifying something. Uh, I mean, as I said, like, that's the English ordinal. You know, throughout the history of the church, these, you've, you know, there have been forms of recognizing these various ministries sure. and roles, but uh, uh, which, were, f- which were public and explicit, um, you know, bringing, I think, into sharp clarity and focus, giving a concreteness to, to offices and roles within the church, which seem to exist in the New Testament, namely the, presby- the, 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 the deacon, the presbyter, and the, and the bishop. Yeah, but but the claim of authority comes from succession all the way back to Paul. So if the if it wasn't formalized till the 1500s for the English and whoever knows wherever else in 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 history, I don't I don't see how you can argue that that is the that is sufficient. To me that's like, well, if it's not clearly defined for 1500 years, you can't tell me that the I bishop I didn't say it wasn't were, clearly defined. I'm only talking about the experience of the Church of England. Okay, so let, what, was it clearly defined for 1,500 years that that you can trace back all the way to Timothy and Paul? Well, I think we have uh, people we know were bishops in every century. Uh, I don't know. I, like, I don't do know, you know I don't, how I don't they know became if, bishops. I don't or? know if anybody knows how how they get how they get, they get they gained that office. See, and this goes back to something that probably is better for another podcast. But um, when you think about authority over a region, when you think about the words that were used, I think there's a lot of extrapol. I feel like there's a lot of extrapolation here between what the Bible says and what the Anglican methodology affirms mm-hmm. with the role of the authority of apostles. Because I don't see that authority in the scriptures. I see it with Paul. I, I see it with Peter, but. In another avenue, you say that the faith of the apostles is the same faith that we have today. So I don't see what's special about the apostles, even. What do you mean, what's special about the apostles? Well, there's obviously something unique and special about the the role of a bishop mm-hmm. with with Anglicans, mm-hmm. which you trace back to the apostles. Mm-hmm. And you can say that a bishop functions in the role and with the authority of an apostle. Mm-hmm. But I don't see the scriptures identifying that authority. Oh, right. Okay. Now, and I'm seeing, um, you know, uh, the descriptions of, you know, as you would call um, the New Testament elders, I'm interpreting, I'm interpreting them as, as bishops, largely. Okay. Largely. Hmm. That's a whole nother podcast for another day. It is. So, Ian, uh, to... so this this issue of um, of this issue of of uh, methodology in in the church uh, brings up huge 
huge differences in, in how we're interpreting scripture. I, um, I, at one point did, but I no longer uh, do I affirm an unmediated access to the Bible um, that's completely divorced from uh, the creeds or, or divorced from uh, voices of authority within the church. Um, remember, it is people who think they have an unmediated access to the New Testament uh, who form organizations such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, Unitarians, Unitarian Universalists. Um, I, I, I think to myself, this is not, you know, and the Puritans, of course, who became, often became Unitarians. This is not a, this is not a, a, a theological uh, position or belief about scripture I can realistically hold anymore. Um, but rather, the faith is delivered uh, witnessed to in the scriptures, but handed down by human hands. This is the sacred treasure of the church, carried uh, not only in the words on a page, but within uh, actual people and the relationships between people in God's church. Well, I think we need to set up another podcast for that, the, this idea of mediated versus unmediated mm -hmm. access to the scriptures. Because in, in my mind, if I were to have that view that you have, then again, I point to the defense of slavery mm -hmm. in America in the 1700s and 1800s by prominent Christians, prominent authors, prominent theologians, people who we could say have a, a authority um, on the same level as what you would view as a bishop. And um, if we had mediated access to the scriptures, we would still be justifying slavery and racism with the scriptures. So in my mind, that gets incredibly dangerous. But that's another podcast for another day. We got more podcast ideas, Ian. We do indeed. That's what it's for. Um, thank you all for listening. If you like what we're doing, uh, please send us a comment, text, email, and now we're set up for smoke signals, Ian. And indeed, if you hate what we're doing as well, we also want to hear from you. Please tell us. Give us your hate mail. We want your hate mail. Please send it to us. Just anything. Communication. Affirm us. Why? Or not affirm us. Just right. affirm that we're alive. All right. I'll see you later. <laughs> and as always, I'd like to thank our executive producer, Nosmo King, mm. for all of his efforts in making this podcast possible. Nosmo's so great. I, is he? I, he brought you coffee the other day. I've not seen him in a week, so... Oh, geez. You and Nosmo are on the outs. Right. All right, guys. Thanks for joining in. See you next time. Bye. Something inside